Many of you are aware, but not all of you are aware, I had a surgery on my shoulder this past Wednesday. So I want to thank those of you who were able to pray for me this past week. I appreciate that and ask that you'd continue to pray. Um, the surgery they ended up doing was a bit more extensive than what they were originally planning. I was originally planning on this Sunday being a Sunday where I'd already be out of the sling. And they said I'd only need to be in the sling for a couple of days. And because of what they needed to do, I'll be in this sling for the next five weeks. So a little bit of a change as far as what was expected. So I'm feeling a little rough this morning, to be perfectly honest with you. So if I come across a little bit more dopey than usual, <laughs> all right, what I'm going to ask is that you extend me some grace, okay? If I say things that don't make sense or I repeat myself or whatever, you just go with the flow, okay? Just <laughs> stay with me and together we'll, we'll make it work, okay? Advent. This is the second Sunday in Advent, and Advent celebrates the coming of God in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to start out by thinking about what are the implications of God being with us? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? If God moves into your neighborhood, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does that raise property values or does that lower property values if God moves into your neighborhood? Seriously, God with us, yes, good thing or bad thing. You know what's interesting is that over the course of human civilization, um, for centuries and centuries, human beings had very little control over their environment or over their circumstances. And so for centuries, human beings were used to um, diseases coming in and just ravaging their people and killing their young children. For centuries, they were hunter-gatherers and so times would come where there would be no animals, there would be no prey, and they couldn't put meat on the table, and the rains did not come, and so the crops did not grow, and they would starve to death, and they'd have to move and go someplace else where they could find food. And on a regular basis, other tribes would come in and pillage them and, and take their property and take their children and take their women. And so for centuries and centuries, God was viewed as a very moody God, as a God that needed to be appeased, as a God who was very angry, as a God who was condemning. And it was just assumed God hates us and God is mad at us because we're constantly dealing with bad weather and earthquakes and, and you know, and people uh, pillaging us and disease and, you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. But what's interesting is in our modern day culture, especially in a first world country like ours, things have kind of flipped. And now when you talk to people, even when they don't have a religious background, their basic assumption is that God is good and that God is loving, not that he's vengeful or mad. And so you see that because when people, like something goes bad for their family, they kind of shake a fist at God and say, God, if you're loving, why are you allowing this to happen to us? And I always want to stop at that point and say to the person, wait a minute, why are you assuming God is loving? Why is your presupposition that God's loving? Maybe God's vengeful. Maybe God's mad as all get out, you know, in which case what's happening to you is totally deserved and you should have expected it, you know. 
But because of, of the comfortable environment in which we live, when something goes bad, we're like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Obviously, God loves us. Obviously, God wants us to be happy. Obviously, God doesn't want us to be sick. So, so what's going on? And so you understand that it's important to ask, what are the implications of God with us? Because, see, it all depends on what kind of God he is. Totally depends on that. Because God with us could be bad news. God with us could be scary. Or God with us could be by far the best news we've ever heard in our entire lives. And so I want to encourage you to go with me to God's word and to consider God's track record with his people and to come to a firm understanding of who God is. Because as we begin to understand better who God is, then we have a greater appreciation for what it means when we say, hey, God is with us. And so last week, if you were here for the first Sunday in Advent, we considered the fact that God with us brings hope. That if it's one thing that every human being needs, it's you need a glimmer of hope. You have to believe that better days are ahead. And we learned last Sunday that the way the Bible uses the word hope isn't the way you and I typically use the word hope. That when you and I typically say we hope for something, we say like, oh, I hope we have a white Christmas. Or I hope we get that gift that I was wanting to have. But it's an uncertainty. It may happen, it may not happen. We keep our fingers crossed, but we really don't know. A lot of uncertainty. That's not the biblical word hope. In the Bible, the word is hope is used in the idea that it's, it's a confident expectation for better days that are ahead. And it's an unrealized certainty. It's something that's definite. We just haven't experienced it yet. We just haven't attained it yet, but it's coming. We know better days are ahead. And that's the hope that God brings through us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we learn that the, the basis for our hope is found in his word, and in the very character of God, and then specifically within the faithfulness of God in each of our lives. When we look at his track record in our lives and in the lives of his people, we understand that God can be trusted and that God is a God who does indeed bring hope. Well, this morning, here's our focus. In the second Sunday in Advent, I want you to see that God with us brings love. God with us brings love. And so do you believe God loves you? Have you experienced his love? And here's the most important thing from this morning. Have you responded to the love of God? Because you see, you can, you can believe that God loves you, and I hope you do. And if you don't believe that, I hope 20 minutes from now, you're closer to believing that. But the truth is this, you can believe God loves you, but it's not enough. You've got to respond to the love of God. The love of God towards each one of you calls for an individual response from you. And so what I'm hoping is that by the time we're done here this morning, your heart will respond to God in a very authentic way as he speaks to your heart. And so I've said this often, I'll say it again now. If you had a brain the size of a mustard seed, if you had an itsy-bitsy, teeny-tiny brain, that was so small, you could only comprehend one little piece of data. And your brain was so small that you could only retain one little piece of information. Here's what I would vote 
as being the one piece of data I'd want in your brain. God loves you. God is for you and not against you. If you could only know one thing, I think that's the life-changing truth that you need to build upon is the fact that God does indeed love you and that he is for you and not against you. And so for our text this morning, I want to take you to 1 John chapter 4. And the verses we're going to unpack this morning are so powerful. They're so rich in meaning. There's so much beauty to these words. And I I love the fact that we're we're able to consider uh, these truths found in 1 John chapter 4. And so right now, I'd invite you to please stand at the reading of God's word. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the good news found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word that you love us, that you have our best interests in mind. And Father, we ask this morning that you'd speak to each of our hearts, that we could walk out of this room, Lord, with the fullness of your love in our hearts and minds, that God, we'd be convinced of that truth and that your love would make all the difference in our life. Father, give us in your mercy and in your grace the gift of faith that we can respond to your love in an appropriate manner. And Father, we ask humbly that this morning as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you'd give us hearts that are open and teachable and coachable to what is true. Father, we want to commit this time to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In unpacking 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12, you're going to see that it breaks apart into three neat, neat little pieces, okay? So as we unpack this, here's the first part I want you to see, the source of love, that the Apostle John lays out for us, the source of of all love. Again, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so the apostle makes two strong assertions. Here they are. Number one is, love comes from God, and the second is, God is love. So, source of love Two things you have to come to grips with is that love comes from God and that God is love. Let's consider both of these things. First of all, the idea that love comes from God. He is the source of all love. You see, God has created you and I 
in his image. And because that's true, we have the capability to love those around us. You and I can choose to love whomever we choose to love. We can also choose to withhold our love from anybody from which we want to do that. But you see, we're special creations of God. We're separated from the animal kingdom. And folks, don't buy the lie that you and I are just a higher evolved form of animal. It's not true, okay? That we are created in the image of God. We've been given eternal souls. And part of that involves that God has created us with the capability to look outside of ourselves, to focus on those around us and to love other people. And that source of love is God. He's created us with that capability. He gives us the capability to love the way we should. It's, it's similar to just like any electrical appliance. Like, you know, if you have a toaster in your kitchen, if that toaster isn't plugged in, it's useless. It doesn't matter how many slices of bread you put in it or how many times you push it down, it's not going to do anything. It's only when it's connected to the power source that it's, it's going to function the way that it should. That's the way it is with you and I. You and I can never love the way we were designed to love until we're connected to the power source. But once that's flowing, once that's a part of the way we live our lives, we can be a blessing to others. Our lives can make a huge difference in this world because God's uh, love is flowing through us and he seeks to be a blessing to others. And so John compares uh, in this verse uh, the believer to the unbeliever. And he says, he says, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. That's a key mark of somebody who knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How interesting it is that when Jesus sought to tell us what the identifying mark is of a true follower of Christ. There's so many things he could have said. And he could have said that, you know, your your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciple. But he could have said, hey, your Bible knowledge. How good you score in Bible trivia will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How often you attend church on Sunday mornings will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your correct doctrine or true beliefs will prove how much you are my disciples. That's not what he says. Now, I'm not degrading any of those things necessarily, right? But don't lose fact that when Jesus said, you know what's going to prove to a dying world? You know what's going to prove to a world that's alienated from me, that you really know me, that you're really one of my followers? It's the way you love each other. That when the world looks at the church and sees this diverse group of people, from all different backgrounds coming together and being kind to one another and caring for one another and reaching out to one another, that as they observe that, it's what's going to draw them to the truth of the gospel. That you and I loving each other the way we should is the identifying mark of a true follower of Christ. Now, unbelievers can certainly love, but it's to a very limited extent. And our capacity, because we're plugged into the power source, is far greater. Now stated negatively, John says, a person who does not love doesn't really know God. That a person who's full of anger, 
and bitterness and hatred and division and racism. People like that, their heart has obviously been untouched by the gospel. And for a person in that condition to claim they know God, they're deluding themselves. It's just not true. Because a person who's really encountered God, they've experienced his love and then his love begins to flow from them to those around them. And so love comes from God. Now the second tenet was that God is love. He says straight up, God is love. It's one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Even people who know almost nothing about religion or the Bible know the phrase that God is love. Now let me emphasize something here, and it's this. Let me remind you what this does not say. What it does not say is that love is God. You're saying something totally different when you say that, and so understand this verse is not saying love is God. A lot of people treat the attribute of love in that way, is that it's the ultimate end-all, and that it's the ultimate thing to worship, the ultimate thing to strive for, and that ultimately, you know, when you're talking about God, that's just a conceptual thing, that's an abstract thing. But what we're really talking about is love, you know? Eh, wrong, okay? That's not what it says. It doesn't say that love is God. It's God is love. Now, God is love, but of course, God is not only love. God is not only love. Somebody much smarter than I um, has studied the scriptures and they've determined there's at least 152 different figures of speech and descriptions of God in the Bible. And so God's character is multifaceted. God's character is very complex to the point where he's infinite. Therefore, you and I can just begin to apprehend God, but we could never comprehend him. And so while God is indeed love, he is so much more than just love. And yet, one of the foundational Old Testament tenets is that God is a God who zealously loves his people. Check out Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And so it is God's character to have a zealous love for his people. He's always desiring to bless us. He always has our best interests in mind. And so we see the source of love is indeed our Heavenly Father. Now, second part of 1 John chapter 4, I want you to see is laid out the model of love. There's an example of love. There's a description of love, the perfect model of love for you and I to exemplify, to mimic. Verses 9 and 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 9 reminds us of the fact that love is primarily a verb. It's an action. It's not a feeling. We tend to think of love as like an emotion. It's like having the warm fuzzies. It's like feeling a particular connection or you resonate with a particular person. You know, you feel like there's that connection there and there's that feeling of love. And you know what? Feelings of love are awesome. And I'm glad that God has designed us to where there's emotions attached 
to love. But ultimately keep in mind this, that love isn't an emotion, it's an action, it's a verb. What it means is you and I, for us, love is an act of the will. We volitionally choose to love others or to not love others, even as God chose to love us. And it was expressed, this action that God took was expressed in the sending of his son. Very concrete, specific thing he did because he loved us. He sent his son. Now, it says he sent his son because it speaks of an intimate relationship. He didn't say he sent Christ. It says he sent his son. And not just his son, but his only son. There's a lot of people that will say, well, yeah, Jesus was the son of God, just like you and I are sons of God or daughters of God. He was just one among many sons. And yet that's not what scripture teaches, that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is unique, that Christ is the only son in that sense, that he alone is the true son of God. And so the only son of God was sent as an expression of God's love. Now, I love verse 10, and I'll tell you why. In verse 10, um, John gets down to the nitty gritty of what love is all about. Have you ever been trying to explain some, something to somebody, and you can tell by the look on their face they're not getting it? And so you rephrase it, and you try to say it simpler or more concise so they get it, and you're looking at their face and you can tell they're still not following you. And so you're growing more and more frustrated, but you're trying to stay patient. And so you get to that point where you say, okay, this is it. And then as concisely and as simply as you possibly can, you say what you're trying to say. I want to suggest that's exactly where John is at in his letter right now. That in the first four chapters, he's been talking about love over and over again. And he's been circling, circling, circling around the topic of love, zeroing in on it, trying to explain it, trying to get it to be understood. But now in John chapter 4, verse 10, he's gotten at the point where he's saying, okay, this is real love. I can't say it more simply. I can't say it more concisely. And there's a few different components to what real love is. So check it out. This is real love. And the first component is this. Love takes the initiative. That real love always takes the initiative. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, you and I are used to reciprocal relationships. We kind of hold back and figure, okay, well, I'm going to see if that person is friendly to me before I'm overly friendly to them. I'm not sure that person's going to be my friend. I'm going to see if they like me or not, you know? And so a lot of times, the way we connect with others is very reciprocal. It depends on what kind of vibe we're pulling from them. But you see, in this, God loved us before we loved him. He didn't love us because he looked down and said, man, you're so lovable. You know, you are such a good person. I'm going to love you because you're so easy to love. That's not how it happened, right? That it was by God's sovereign, merciful choice, he chose to love us, period. It was based on no merit of our own that he loved us. And he took the initiative because here's the deal. If God had waited till you or I had taken a first step towards him, it would have never happened. It would have never happened. And God knew that. So God, in his 
sovereign wisdom and his mercy and his love, he took the first step and he took the initiative in reconciling us to himself. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Really important starting point, okay? So second component in describing real love is this, that love moves into action. That love always moves into action and expresses itself in concrete ways. It's seen in the word send, that he sent his son. He loved us and he expressed it. He moved into action by sending his son. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told? And do you remember the guy was beaten up and left for dead and two religious guys walked by and saw him and they both had pity on him. They both felt sorry for the guy, but neither of them stopped the help, right? And it was the Good Samaritan who stopped and helped the guy that was the one who really loved him. And that was a teaching, that was a reminder that if you really love somebody, it's going to make a difference in the way you behave, in the way you treat them. Because love isn't just feeling pity. It's not just feeling compassion. It's not just having warm fuzzies in your heart. But it's actually getting involved in other people's lives and doing something for him, moving into action. And so love takes the initiative, love moves into action. And the third component is this, that true love acts generously and sacrificially. It acts generously and sacrificially. And it's seen in that what he sent, who he sent, was his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So he didn't send just an angel or another prophet. He sent his own son. And the ultimate price that this son would be paying would be his very life, that he would suffer that he'd be mistreated, that he would die due to no fault of his own. And so this was a love that moved into action that was incredibly generous and sacrificial. My friends, let me tell you this. If you're loving those around you properly, it won't be easy. Let me say it again. If you're loving those around you the way you should, it will not be easy because true love is always sacrificial and being generous can hurt and it's going to be inconvenient it's going to cost you your own ambitions it's going to cost you your own schedule it's going to cost you out of your checking account that real love involves sacrifice and generosity all the time and so Love takes the initiative, love moves into action, love acts generously and sacrificially, and lastly, love meets the greatest need. And so why was this son sent into the world as a sacrifice? The answer at the end of verse 10, to take away our sins. To take away our sins. Our greatest need was forgiveness. Our sin had alienated us from God the Father. Our sin had alienated us from one another, And so whatever else we had going on were all symptoms of the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem was we were sinners in need of forgiveness. God saw that and sent his son to meet our greatest need. I love Romans 3, verse 25. Check it out. 
For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Do you know you're right with God? Do you have confidence that you're right with God? I hope you do. But let me tell you this. You're never going to be right with God by performing religious rituals. You will never be right with God by becoming more moral or more religious. You can't be religious enough. You can't be moral enough to bridge that gap. It's right there. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. When you understand that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, that's when you got it. That's when the mercy of God has has fully bloomed in your heart and you understand that salvation is a gift. And by simply believing in the sacrificial death of Christ, you receive all the blessings that God wants to give you. Lastly, and I'm packing 1 John chapter 4, I want you to see the command to love. After everything else, here's the bottom line. In light of what we've just learned, we're given a challenge. And here it is, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, since God loved us that much, wait a minute, that's past tense. What's it talking about? Well, It's past tense because it's referring to a specific historical event. It's referring to the death of Christ. It's referring to the death of Christ. And so it's in the past tense. It said, since God loved us that much, how much? That Jesus died a painful death on the cross. Since that's a historical fact, we surely ought to love each other. We surely ought to love. And you know what that ought? to love each other. That's not an external compulsion where like, you know, God's pinching the back of our neck saying, you better start loving people. All right. It's not an external compulsion. It's an internal drive. It's like in light of the fact that I'm a recipient of God's love, it only makes sense that I share his love with others. And so in light of all that God's done for us, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So we're challenged to reflect the character of God. God said, be holy for I am holy. And here we're taught that because God is love, you and I are to be loving. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Imitate God. Therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Okay, so how do we mimic God? How do we imitate God? Here it is, verse 2. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And so you see, your friends and coworkers, your neighbors, they've never seen God. They really don't know much about God. But here's the deal. They can experience God in a life-changing way through the love they see in you, through the love they experience in you. That's why John says no one's seen God, but they can experience the full expression of God's love through the way you live your life. My wife Karen uses an expression on a regular basis. 
um, and, and you've probably heard it before yourself, but she often says that we are to be God with skin on. That to those we encounter on a daily basis, you and I are to be God with skin on. That to them, God is a very abstract concept. That God is very fuzzy and they're not sure what that means or what he's like. And yet, just as Jesus incarnate fleshed out for people exactly who God is and exactly what God is like, that's what we're called to do as well, to live an incarnational life, to have an incarnational ministry, to have a ministry of presence, to be involved in people's lives. Because when they see and experience your love, they experience the love of God through you. And so we need to be God with skin on. Now, there's another way to phrase it. When I was growing up, my spiritual mentor, Harv, always said this. I remember him saying this to us all the time. He always phrased it this way. We may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Now think about that. You might be the only Bible that some people ever read. And so what are they going to learn about God from observing your life? And so we're called to be people who love. As Isaac comes to lead us in prayer, I want to close with these verses. Check it out. 1 John 3, verse 16 through 18. Come on up, Isaac. Don't be shy. Come on up. Check it out. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. It says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well, and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Amen? Can we read that verse together? Let's read verse 18 together, okay? Join me. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Amen.